Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Lead us the way of trust. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Lead us in the way of lament. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Lead us in the way. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Lead us in. in the way of justice. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Lead us in the way of compassion. Blessed are the pure in heart, they will see God. Lead us in the way. In the way of right motive. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Lead us, lead us in the way of peacemaking. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Lead us, lead us in the way, in the way of surrender. Well, good morning, Evergreen. Thank you for joining us this morning. I know we have uh, all you folks that are joining us online, and we actually have some folks that are joining us here live this morning as well, and it's such a treat to be able to see some of you. Uh, Just a few little housekeeping things before we uh, get into the sermon. You can open your Bible to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, that's where we're going to start to dig in today, Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 10. Um, as many of you know, uh, if you're a member of Evergreen, uh, we are working toward having our annual general meeting on the last Wednesday of this month in an electronic format uh, online. And so nom- a nomination email uh, went out this week just to the members. So if you didn't receive an email and you are a member of Evergreen, then please contact the office and we made a clerical error. Uh, but we're pretty sure we, we got the membership list right. And so if you haven't checked your emails, please go to your emails. It's a really simple process. You can also uh, just download uh, the PDF off the website and then drop it off at the office. But we do need your nominations in by the end of today. So the email went out at the beginning of this week. So we're giving you a week to do the nomination process for this year. Well, again, thank you for joining us. Um, we've been working through a sermon series called The Jesus Way. And we've been using uh, the introduction to Jesus' famous teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. We've been exploring the ways of Jesus, literally how Jesus went about living, how he interacted with people, and how Jesus actually summarizes his way, the Jesus way, in this teaching in Matthew 5 called the Beatitudes. 
And the Beatitudes are, are really just a series of blessings where Jesus begins his teaching by giving us a, a portrait of what the kingdom people look like. And so scripture talks about that in the New Testament, about what kingdom people look like. And Jesus is giving us this sort of window into us seeing what kingdom people look like. Not future kingdom people, but actually kingdom people here in God's kingdom, right here, right now, the kingdom that Jesus ushered in upon his death and his resurrection, when he conquered death, when he conquered evil, when he established his kingdom here on earth. We see that in his prayer, uh, your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. And you'll hear that in the gospel of Matthew, the kingdom of heaven. Some call it the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Others call it... um, What do they call it? Kingdom of God, that's it. It's like he's saying, see, it's nice to have people in front of me again. It's like he's saying when you're part of God's kingdom, the kingdom that that I've brought into this world, that this is what you'll look like. This is what we'll act like. This will be the way of his kingdom. And so to summarize very quickly, he said, kingdom people place their trust fully in Jesus. We see this in in verse 3. And the kingdom people are not afraid of emotion, and they learn through their trust in Jesus to lament over loss, suffering, and specifically, Jesus means to lament over the brokenness of the world around us. Kingdom people take a posture of humility in all things, setting aside all pride, because pride drives us towards sin. But Jesus says humility represents the nature of him and helps us to take a posture of love. In verse 6, he talks about kingdom people and how they hunger and they thirst for justice. They can't stand it when others are oppressed by the system and structures that eliminate equality in his kingdom. In verse 7, he talks about kingdom people living a life of compassion and mercy, taking on others' burdens and offering hope without judgment or condemnation. Kingdom people, he says, have the right motive, the right heart in everything that they do, that our motive matters, that Jesus looks at the inside before the outside, and that it's the inside that actually creates a pure exterior. And kingdom people seek peace and reconciliation. We talked about that last week. Me and Pastor Tamil chatted about that up here. And it's, it's one of the doctrines that we believe as Anabaptists that many people actually press up against, which kind of blows my mind because it's one of the most dominant themes in the New Testament. But we really struggle with this concept of peacemaking and reconciliation. But kingdom people seek peace and they seek to reconcile all relationships. And all of these blessings, they're, they're interconnected. They're, they're painting us a picture of what the people of God look like here on earth. Those who live in his kingdom look like this. And in today's passage, Jesus is going to continue this trend, but he turns a, a bit of a corner. He's wrapping up his introduction to his Sermon on the Mount by saving the most challenging teachings for last. Matthew chapter 10. Jesus says, Blessed are those 
who are persecuted. Now, often we stop there. We can't stop there. You have to listen to the rest of his teaching. So blessed are those who are persecuted. And he's going to tell us in this why those people would be persecuted. He said, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. And then he says, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. See, the kingdom of heaven is theirs. That's what he's, he's painting us a picture of these kingdom people. And he says, the kingdom of heaven is theirs when you're persecuted, but not just persecuted because you're a Christian, actually persecuted because of righteousness. That's important to understand, folks. You see, the early church suffered persecution. We, we, many of us know that if you've been around Christianity for any length of time, like even a week, you know that the early church in the book of Acts suffered persecution. And at first, persecution came from their Jewish counterparts. They were actually Jews who believed that Jesus was their Messiah, and they were being persecuted for their righteousness. I'll get into that in a minute. You're going to have to hold on. But they were being persecuted because of their righteousness actually by their own people. But then progressively what began to happen is is they also started to get persecuted from the Romans. That was the government that was in charge. They kind of had an interesting system. They had uh, the Romans. They were under Roman rule at the time of Jesus. Uh, Rome was the government, but then they had this thing called the Sanhedrin, which was sort of like their own government, their own structure within Judaism, and they were allowed to function with their sort of governing, ruling Sanhedrin, but they also had to function with the governance of Rome as well. And so Rome began to persecute them as well. Now, it's interesting because the North American church, I think, really actually struggles to understand persecution. I think we really struggle to understand persecution because we're just not persecuted like the early church was. Now, a lot of people will be like, yeah, we're not persecuted like the early church was because like, we have the freedom of religion. We have the, the, the right to worship and to gather together and to, to do all these different things. These are the things that have been challenged by some in this whole COVID adventure. But I actually don't believe that that's why the North American church isn't persecuted. I think there's something else going on, and I think that this passage gives us insight into that. You see, we're not persecuted because we're Christians. The passage says we're persecuted because of righteousness. Persecution is deeply misunderstood, but this text gives us Context because of their righteousness, not simply because they believed. You see, there's something going on in this text that's very interesting. Christianity, folks, poses a threat when it is lived out the way that Jesus calls it to be lived out. It poses a threat to those who are in power when it's being lived out the Jesus way. So we need to go back and we actually need to look at the word righteousness. Now, I taught on this actually when we were dealing with righteousness and justice, and so we're going to recap a little bit about that, and I'm going to expand on it a little bit. So we're going to look at both the Hebrew word, tzedakah, 
uh, and the Greek word that's used uh, for the word righteousness and how it is interpreted in the text. So the, the Hebrew word for righteousness, whenever you see that word in the Hebrew text, that's the Old Testament for those that don't know that, it essentially means right relationships between people. So when the Hebrew text says, live righteously, it's saying live in right relationship with other people. It literally means to treat others rightly with respect, with love, and, and with equality. So righteousness in the Old Testament was all about others. It was others-centered, about how God calls us to respectfully live in relationship with one another and to not seek power, but to see others as equal. Now, the New Testament does something very fascinating. There's only one word that is used in the original languages to describe righteousness and justice, and that is the Greek word dikaiosune. Everybody in the room can say dikaiosune with me. You just gotta, you're speaking Greek right now. Actually, you're, you're speaking Koine in Greek, which is not actually the dialect that they would use today. It was the biblical dialect. Anyway, I digress. If you were to go and talk like the text does, Greek people would look at you funny. Uh, they'd understand you, but they'd think you're like from the sticks somewhere. So each time you see this word, dikaiosune, we interpret it two different ways in our text. We sometimes articulate it as the word righteousness, and at other times we articulate it as the word justice. And as I taught before, our English language uses dikaiosune, the only word that's used, righteousness or justice, it's used simultaneously. And we have to make a translational uh, uh, decision based on the way that our culture actually looks at these two words differently. And we, we struggle to, to see doing what's right. Like each, each this word, dikaiosune, um, righteousness or justice, like it just simply means doing what is right. It means it means fairness, uprightness, right relationship, or simply doing what is right. So we have to make this interpretive decision, righteousness, justice, what does all this mean? And, and by separating these words, it's because of how we look through the eyes of legality. It's how we look at the legal system and we look at our, our need to have rights and all of these different things changes the original meaning of what Dekaiasune actually Means And so in order to understand the text, we've got to strip it all back and say, no, righteousness and justice actually means fairness, uprightness, right relationship, or simply doing what's right. Now, doing what's right has become a loaded statement in the Christian church in itself, but I'll get into that in a minute. So we say that God is just, that we have a just God, a God that seeks justice in all things, and what we mean by that in our English language is that eventually people will get what they deserve because God knows better than we do. He's just. He will give people what they deserve. And that God is a righteous God. So when we say a just God, we mean get what you deserve. When he's a righteous God, we're talking about like, like ethics. 
Here's the thing. Strip all that back. That's not what the original text is talking about. Neither of those ways. So when the Bible actually says that God is a just God, it means fairness, uprightness, right relationship, doing what is right. Now, that might mean that you get what you deserve, but in our English language and our cultural interpretation of that, I think we've strayed away from the nature of who God actually is. And then righteousness, we say, well, that, that is just living without sin. That's living a sinless life. I'm righteous. But often we're self-righteous about sinlessness because none of us, except Jesus Christ, has ever actually achieved it and ever will until we're with him in heaven. And so we mess up these words and we, the New Testament Greek language is showing us that doing what is right is actually all about how we treat others, not simply about being right, not simply about believing the right things, but about doing what is right in our relationships. It, it, this actually, if you really look at it, and you have to do this when you read the New Testament, you have to look at the overarching theme of all of Scripture. You need to start in Genesis. You can't read Matthew without reading Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all the prophets, then Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And like you, you can't actually read Scripture and understand Scripture without knowing the overarching story of what Scripture is saying because you have to place the context in that overarching story. And so the Bible, the New Testament specifically, lines up with this dikaiosune concept because Jesus calls us to love our neighbor. You see this kind of theme throughout all of the New Testament where, where Jesus calls us to be loving before anything else. Well, essentially, folks, that is righteousness. That is loving our neighbor. Doing what is right according to the Bible is actually restorative justice, a life of reconciliation. Our righteousness is directly linked to how we treat others in society. It's linked to our structures and how we should treat everyone as image bearers of God. It's linked to how we function directly in community. This is why the book of Acts highlights the people's reaction to the coming Holy Spirit. That's why they're so excited about the Holy Spirit and they react the way that they do in Acts chapter 2. You see, they built, this was their reaction. If you look it up after Pentecost, you look up what happened, they built a community that has everything in common. A community that saw one another as equals, made in the image of God, that there was no status, there was no male, there was no female there was no Jew, there was no Gentile, that we were all just one in Christ. And this made the early Christians drastically different than the power-hungry world around them. And when I say power-hungry world around them, I'm saying the way that Judaism was run by the Sanhedrin and the way that Rome was run by its government. Power is what corrupts righteousness. And so whenever the church is seeking power, the church doesn't get persecuted. But when the church is seeking righteousness, it does. And that's according to this text. They are persecuted 
because of their righteousness. You see, Jesus was their Lord. And we have to understand what that means. Jesus was their Lord, meaning, like I said last week, our our need to not actually have rights. We don't actually need to have rights because Jesus is our Lord. Jesus being Lord means Jesus is the one dictating how we live, that we live through Jesus. And so, yes, we have rights in our world today, but actually as Christians, we don't even need them because Jesus is our Lord. Now, the New Testament shows that they suffered greatly for doing what is right, for living righteously. In 1 Peter, we were doing a series before COVID hit in 1 Peter, and someday we're going to finish that book. But in 1 Peter, we see a group of Christians living outside in a Roman area, and they're being persecuted for their righteousness. And Peter is trying to encourage them. And listen to what he says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. He says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness... You'll notice this. Whenever you're looking at suffering and persecution, you're probably going to see the word righteousness somewhere in that sentence. Check it out for yourself. Read the whole thing. Start to finish. Go for it. It's good. He says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Well, isn't isn't that exactly what Jesus says in the Beatitudes? But then listen to what Peter says. He says, do not fear them or be imitated, intimidated. You see, this passage, passages like this are all over the New Testament. Live righteously and you might suffer for it, but do it anyway because you will be blessed. Now, there's something very different about the way the early Christians lived. And I would challenge North American church that there's something very different about the way the early Christians lived compared to the way we North American Christians live today. I think we North American Christians rest on our need for rights much rather than our need for righteousness. You see, they placed their fear not in the government, not in COVID, not in any of these different things. They placed their fear in the Lord rather than in the world. And you've heard me say this. I think the North American church lacks the fear of God because it's the fear of God that presses us toward righteousness. Now, let's, uh, to, I'm going to give you kind of an example. Let's turn our Bibles to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, I'll let you get there. Verses 12 to 42. And we've got nine minutes to plow through these verses. There's something really interesting going on that I want to point out in the midst of this, and then I'm going to put a little caveat to this about how we're really misunderstanding often what the text is saying. So first we have at the beginning of chapter 5, we have the story of Ananias and Sapphira, and it's kind of a crazy story how they're struck dead because they're lying. Wouldn't that be interesting if we were all just struck dead because we lied? And actually it's It's about lining up and giving, like they walked up to the front and gave as Jesus or the apostles at that time stood there. Now we like give in secret and it's all like this personal thing. There's nothing like scripture uh, was. 
In verse 12, after this, we have a very interesting story. It continues on. We're only five chapters into the book of Acts. It's giving us history of the early church. And in verse 12, it says this. Many signs and wonders were being done among the people through the hands of the apostles. I want you to remember that. Here's the context. Many signs and wonders are happening all around them through the hands of the apostles. They were all together in Solomon's colonnade that was just outside of the temple. They would gather together just like we do, except they would do it every day. No one else dared to join them. That's an interesting statement because it's going to contradict itself in a second. No one else dared to join them, but the people spoke well of them. Let me ask you, do people speak well of you? Do people speak well of your church? Do people speak well of the North American church. It says here, but the people spoke well of them. So these weird now Christians, they don't even know them as that, are meeting in this colonnade, worshiping the Messiah that some believe really was and some believe wasn't. You can sense the, the, the strife that would be, the tension that would be in the air. But people spoke well of them. And then it says, believers were added to the Lord in increasing numbers. So you're seeing signs and wonders and you're seeing respect, and you're seeing growth. Multitudes of both men and women. As it was interesting that they were letting women in. Side note, the New Testament lets women in the church and lets them function as they're gifted and called. Just saying. Anyway, as a result, they would carry the sick out into the streets and lay them on cots and mats So that when Peter came by, so Jesus has died and risen again and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And it says when Peter came by, just a guy came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. In addition, a multitude came together from the towns surrounding Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those who were tormented by unclean spirits And they were all healed. So know this context. This is what's happening in the early church. Is this happening in the North American church today? Now, some would argue and say it's not supposed to. I would say reread the text. Listen now, though, what happens. And this is what ushers in this concept of persecution. So people, if you notice in that passage, the oppressed are being lifted up. Often in the New Testament, that's who Jesus is speaking of and speaking to, the oppressed. He's bringing equality. He's saying, if you struggle with sickness, struggle with torment, struggle with unclean spirits, in the church, you can be healed. And listen to this. Then the high priest rose up. Now, the high priest is part of the Sadducees. So we have several different groups happening in Judaism at this time. You had the Essenes. We're not going to really talk about them because they're the weirdos that ran out into the wilderness and kind of did their own thing. They're, they're like living in Port Rowan sort of thing. And then we had the Sadducees who had the high priests. They were the ones who ran the Sanhedrin, which was the governing authority at the time, which had both Pharisees and Sadducees in it. And so the Sadducees had the high priest. They were kind of like the the original sort of, well, they weren't really the line of Levi, but they were kind of sort of supposed to be. They were the ones who ran the temple. They were the ones who profited off of the temple. They were the, the kind of holy ones that barely followed scripture. 
And the Pharisees, they were the more radical ones that would be much more kind of like the Anabaptist church today, where they were sort of the radical reformers calling for change within Judaism. And so the Sadducees are the ones running the temple. They're sort of the governing authorities. It says the high priest, who's from the Sadducees, he and all who were with him, who belonged to the party of the Sadducees, listen to this, were filled with jealousy. So what did they do? They arrest the apostles and they put them in the public jail. Now listen to what God does. But an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail during the night, brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple. So an angel comes in, wrap your head around this for a second. You're sitting in jail. Anybody been in prison? I have. Um, Not like jail, jail, but like, it doesn't matter. You're sitting in a cell with your buddies because you've been preaching the good news. You've just purely been witnessing to people and through witnessing to people, people are being healed, lives are being transformed. And guess what? The Jews around you are upset about this. The religious folks around you are upset that people are being transformed. Isn't that ironic? And so they get, they get jealous. You're in jail and then bam, of course, like biblical narrative, an angel shows up. And the angel shows up and the angel is breaking you out of prison. Right? Now, if we're doing what's right, you'd be like, no, I'm just going to stay. I'll let the justice system work me through this. Right? Like, that's not what we're going to do. We're going to go do what the angel tells us to do. So what does the angel say? He doesn't say run. He doesn't say get out of town. He doesn't say, like, leave this place and go someplace where everybody else agrees with you. What he says is, go and stand in the temple and tell the people all about this life, the life that you're living. Hearing this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. They went right back to where they were arrested in the first place and kept on doing what they were doing. So now the story goes on and the high priests, uh, they, they go to get them out of prison and uh, all this chaos happens. They're like, where'd they go? And, the, and somebody comes in like, actually, they're down the street of the temple and they're doing exactly what we already told them not to do. And so they go back and they arrest them and they bring them in front of the Sanhedrin. They bring them in front of the governing authorities of the Jewish people. These are the high priests, these are the rabbis, these are all the big scribes and the big shots in the Jewish religious world. And in verse 33, it says this, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. So what had happened is, is that they just stood up and said, hey, like we're just telling people about Jesus, what's the problem? Jesus is Lord. Now that would set them off. And that is what set them off. Now, I'm going to get this guy's name wrong. I get it. I pronounce it wrong all the time, but he's actually the guy who mentored the Apostle Paul. Uh, his name is Gamamelia. Uh, what is it? How do you say it? Gamelia. Gamelia. That's it. I always mess it up. So Gamelia stands up and he says this He's a Pharisee, a teacher of the law who was respected by the people. He stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered the men to be taken outside for a little while. Peter, you and your buddies, you got to go out. We got some talking to do here at the Sanhedrin. And he said to them, men of Israel, be careful about what you're about to do to these men. 
Some time ago, Theodos rose up claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men rallied around him. He was killed, and all his followers were dispersed and came to nothing. After this, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and attracted a following. He also perished, and all his followers were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, stay away from these men. Leave them alone. For if this plan or, or this work is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is of God... You will not be able to overthrow them. You may even be found fighting against God. Folks, often that's what religion does. Causes us to fight against God for our right to be right, rather than to follow Jesus as our Lord. Now, the text simply says they were persuaded by him. After they called in the apostles and had them flogged, they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and they released them. Now listen to what this says. Then they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name of Jesus. And then what happens? Every day in the temple and in various homes, they continued teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. So they're ordered not to do something, but they do it anyway. Now, I want to give a bit of a caveat here, because so many people are like sitting at the edge of their seats, and they're like, yes, it's exactly what it should be doing. We impose our beliefs on others, and we just don't worry about what the authorities think of that. Yes, yay, Christianity. And that's what North America says, but that's not actually what's happening here. So they rejoice because of how poorly they were treated. The question that I ask is, why? It's simple. Their righteousness. They saw this as a sign that they were doing what was right. Because it was different than the culture around them. Think about this. How different is the North American church than the culture around them? around it other than we have music that doesn't swear other than the fact that we have separate schools that teach the same curriculums but just add Jesus in and it's all fixed now what is actually different about how we live our lives compared to how the person in the desk beside us lives their non-christian life is it simply that you don't drink and you don't swear is it simply ethics based what is actually different about the way that you live Righteousness, the way that you treat others, the way that you view others. Now, why were they in trouble in the first place? You see, they'd gather in the colonnade daily. People were being healed and sick were flocking to them to receive what Jesus had to offer the church. They were, they were oppressed by demons, but they were setting people free. Their numbers were growing. That is actually why... They're being oppressed. They were doing good. They had a good reputation. And the religious folks don't want that. Folks, our world is not much different than this world, except that much of the Christian church has merged itself into being the religious world. 
It caused them to be jealous, it said. The, the high priest, he felt threatened. Come to a ministerial sometime and hear how the other pastors talk about the other churches and how we're like all in competition and battling with one another and how during COVID-19, some churches that have been open for quite a while are like, look at us grow. And I'm just laughing, going, good for you. We'll see how it all works out a year or two from now. Because righteousness, how you treat others, seeking justice, seeking reconciliation, living a life of righteousness, that is what attracts people. It's not good sermons, it's not great music, it's not the style in which we worship or in which we do church. Bruxy Cavey says that, that uh, um, the, the, the North America style of church is, is but a, uh, uh, yeah, it's a beautiful expression of, uh, like, a, what do you call it, where it's like a side ingredient. It's like, anyway, it doesn't matter. I just totally screwed up the quote. It was going to be so amazing and so impactful. And I messed it all up because it's, yeah, he calls it a supplement to what the New Testament is actually called to do. So he says that this, this supplement, this thing we call Sunday church, isn't actually central to what the church does. But in North America, it's, it's but a supplement. It's fine. It's great. It's wonderful. It's a beautiful expression. It's mostly just North America that expresses it this way, um, but it's a supplement to how we're actually supposed to be functioning as the church. And that's what we see. We notice in the text, they met in the colonnade, but they were also meeting in various homes, right? Verse 42, every day in the temple and in various homes, they continued teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. You see, persecution doesn't just happen because you believe in Jesus. You're not just persecuted because somebody found out you're a Christian and they think that's kind of weird and so now they're persecuting you for it. Persecution happens when you live a righteous life. And when you live a righteous life, people are being transformed around you. The oppressed are being lifted up. How you treat others is respected in society. I can interact with our mayor. I just did not that long ago. And uh, she respects me, even though I'm a Christian and she's not. But she doesn't respect all of our churches in town, which is actually the conversation we were having. As she called to thank us for how we've been patient throughout COVID-19 compared to the other churches. Remember I've talked about we need to be a good witness we need to live righteously in our society. Now, listen to how James describes the fruit of righteousness. I got to get moving here. James chapter 3, verse 17 to 18. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without pretense, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. Those who cultivate peace are the ones who are fruitful, is what James is saying. This is a drastically different way to think about our culture and a drastically different way that the culture would see us. It makes them angry, actually, when we seek peace. Righteousness is about yearning for God's justice. 
for vindication of the oppressed. It's about passionately seeking God. Now, I I want you to hear me in this. This is really important. If you hear nothing else in this sermon, which you probably didn't, this is what I want you to hear. Righteousness is about passionately seeking God, longing for him more than our daily food or drink. Have you ever been hungry? Have you ever been thirsty? What what righteousness is saying, to live a righteous life, is to long for Jesus more in your life than food or drink. Matthew chapter 4, verse 4 says this, Man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Righteousness is about passionately seeking God first in all things, in all of life, before we eat, before we drink. Righteousness is produced by living with Jesus as your Lord, and it comes from wanting Jesus in your life more than anything else. That's the posture of Peter and James and John and the apostles, and that's what's driving them to live the life that they're living. You see, living a life of righteousness means we stand firm in what we're doing. We stand firm in what is right, even when the consequences are difficult, even when it's a little inconvenient for us. We see this in the New Testament. It's in our story today in the book of Acts. These Christians were not purposely going against the authorities because they were trying to make a political point or make some kind of a political statement or move forward with some sort of agenda. They were completely convicted and completely convinced by the presence of Jesus in their lives that they had to tell the world about the good news of Jesus Christ. And nothing would stop this because they had given up their power, they had given up their authority, they had given up their status, they had given up their wealth. Just read Acts chapter 2. They'd given up all of that in order to live a life with Jesus at the center. You see, they didn't need rights anymore because Jesus is at the center of their life. Nothing would stop this. And it didn't matter that they could be killed for it. Doing what was right meant more. And what was right was living righteously. That's what they were doing. And it's only, the only way to to live this life, folks, is to fully surrender your life to Christ. You have to give up your whole self in order to surrender this way. Matthew chapter 10, verse 39. Anyone who finds his life will lose it. And anyone who loses his life because of me will find it. He's talking there, folks, about us seeking righteousness, seeking doing what's right. If you want to find life, if you want to find freedom, seek Jesus. He's telling us that if we want to find true life, true happiness, then you'll have to give up your life and surrender your will to the Father's will. And then you'll find the life that the gospel offers. 
I'm going to turn things over to Pastor Tamil this morning, and she's going to lead us through a reflection and a prayer time, actually, at the end uh, that I used to do quite a bit with those that were struggling in recovery. When Jesus started his public ministry, he knew that his teaching was totally countercultural. He knew that people who lived out his mission in the world would face all kinds of challenges. From the discomfort of not fitting in, to being misunderstood, to facing violence or even martyrdom. And yet he called his listeners to stick with his teachings and to stand firm in doing what was right, even when it was hard, even when they knew that it was going to cost them something. Because the kingdom of God is bigger and better and more enduring than anything that we experience in this world. There's something incredibly freeing about knowing that we're living for something bigger than ourselves and entrusting God and his love and his power even when things get difficult. Jesus invites us to live out of this posture of surrender. As we wrap up this morning, let's take a minute to think about what's holding us back from living this way. Right now, in this very moment, in this season of your life, What's stopping you from living a life that's fully surrendered to the ways of Jesus? And now what would it look like for you to live out this posture of surrender? Take a minute to invite God into this area of your life that's been getting in your way. Ask him to strengthen you and ask him to help you trust fully in him. We're gonna close this morning's service with the serenity prayer. It's a prayer that some of you are probably familiar with. It's often used in recovery communities. And it's a prayer that really focuses on asking God to help us live out this posture of surrender in our lives.